I'm a big believer that experience teaches. My goal with this show is to have guests to share their experience so that they can tell you what it's like, what they did right and what they did wrong. And I'm gonna share the same. Look, I'm not trying to regurgitate stuff you can find on the internet. I'm gonna tell you how it really is and what it's really like to own your own place. This is the National Restaurant Owners Podcast with your host, Kyle and Sarah. Hey guys, welcome back to the National Restaurant Owners Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle and Sarah, and thanks to you, this is the number one and fastest growing podcast for independent restaurants in the country. It's amazing to think about that because I don't know how many of you guys realize this, but this started out as really just a way to pass time <laughs> during the pandemic. And, you know, I've always had this goal of providing as much information as possible to restaurant owners and uh, wannabe restaurant owners and startups and you know, I, I I learned a lot of things the hard way. I by no means am the Danny Meyer or uh, <laughs> am I some multi-unit operator who can speak from the mountaintop, um, you know, about my successes that I've cashed out for millions of dollars. No, but I learned a lot of things that I think people kind of get stuck on. We made it to pretty much like the ugly duckling stage, which is we had multiple units, but we weren't really investable because we didn't really have our shit together. So um, I learned from that. And um, I'd like to pass those lessons along. And of course, a lot of those lessons come from guests. Uh, a lot of those lessons come just by, you know, hearing from you guys, you know, what, what you guys hear, you guys let me know that you're struggling with rather. And that's where some of these topics come from. That's where some of these conversations, um, not some of them, all of them come from basically is you guys jog my memory of like, oh yeah, I remember dealing with that. And here's what we did and here's what worked and here's what didn't work. And hopefully you take something from it. And that was the goal. And the goal was, you know, the overarching goal was always like, let's try to raise the standards for restaurants in terms of expectations of being successful. And it's, you know, not easy, right? COVID came, that was a big challenge, obviously. But I think just sharing this information uh, as a community, as a podcast is hopefully super helpful to you guys. And I, of course, appreciate the support. And you want to talk about a chef that we have, we talked about in the last episode. We talked about a lot, obviously, and I hate the word pivot. God, I hate the word pivot. It's something that, you know, you have to be willing to adapt. And Chef Eric Wong, the founder and chef of the Packing House, has an incredible resume. And, you know, COVID really kind of turned his career like 180 degrees and has now launched um, basically a whole new restaurant, not basically a whole new restaurant. He's signing a brick and mortar lease for the packing house. Uh, tremendous, tremendous story about how it got started. I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, he's a great guy. Um, kind of just reached out to him. Like I have to so many other folks on social after seeing his videos on YouTube, which if you haven't seen, they're incredible um, showing how they make their fried chicken uh, his incredible sides and the whole story is just is just really great and it's sort of you know we, we allude to this in the episode serendipitous how it worked out and he is going to be opening in brooklyn so pay attention his instagram is linked in the show notes so give him a follow so you know when that opens if you're in the area and if you're not in the area i'm gonna, just gonna say i mean i haven't even had it yet but i'm hoping he's gonna maybe invite me to the to the uh that's the opening so um, when I do have it, just by looking at the pictures, I'm going to say this is going to be, um, very well received in the neighborhood. And you guys just might want to make a trip to Brooklyn at the new spot and get a reservation and check it out. So this is chef Eric Wong founder and chef from the packing house. Enjoy. This episode of the national restaurant owners podcast is brought to you by plate IQ your accounts payable automation and expense management solution. As a restaurant owner, you know how important it is to stay on top of your bills. Plate IQ works with over 20,000 restaurants across the country, helping them manage and automate the full life cycle of the invoice process. Everything from general ledger coding up to and including bill payment. Plate IQ uses OCR. What's OCR, Kyle? I'm going to tell you. It's optical character recognition and deep machine learning to help eliminate manual data entry from the accounts payable process. With Plate IQ's vendor pay, you can seamlessly flow from invoice upload to paying your bills. That means you don't have to type it in. 
you scan it in and it does the rest of the work for you. How about that? Does that save you some time, some headaches? With Play.Q's vendor pay, you can also see what is due and when. Schedule payments via check, ACH, or Plate IQ card. Plus, you can even earn cash back. Yes, cash back on your invoices from over 180,000 vendors. I didn't even know there were that many vendors. That's amazing. Lastly, vendor pay is also for vendors. Keeping your vendors happy will give you leverage in negotiating your terms. Vendors participating in Plate IQ's vendor pay love it because, on average, they get paid. 25% faster. To learn more, head over to plateiq.com, hit request demo in the top right hand corner. And when you're done and you love it and you're ready to sign up, mention that you heard all about Plate IQ on the National Restaurant Owners Podcast from Kyle and receive 25% off implementation. All right, guys, welcome back to the National Restaurant Owners Podcast. Now, you guys know I'm always trying to bring interesting stories, new topics, new guests, chefs, or people in the industry. And I have been following Chef Eric for a while here. And we're going to get into his story, but I want him to introduce himself first. And then we'll go into to what's really cool about what's going on here. Okay. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Eric Wong. I'm a chef in New York City. We are currently building our restaurant, Pecking House, which is a uh, fried chicken restaurant uh, coming to Brooklyn in a few weeks, hopefully. Uh, kind of balances the the best way to describe it perhaps is that it exists at the intersection of hot Nashville chicken uh, and Taiwanese fried chicken. It was kind of a creation during the pandemic um, when I started doing a little takeout outside of my family's restaurant and this thing unexpectedly took off. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the 10, 15 years prior to that, I've been working as a chef, fine dining in New York City. Um, you know, I started at Cafe Blue, to Gramercy Tavern, and then uh, finally I was a sous chef at 11 Madison Park. And uh, I left there in January 2020, hmm. uh, and then you know some stuff happened in the spring of 2020. <laughs> we won't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, yeah, in the fall of 2020 is when I started this fried chicken thing, yeah. and uh, it has been my life ever since. It's crazy. We're coming up on two years of this thing. That's so uh, so yeah, here we are. I mean, that's you really you know encapsulated that pretty well. I, I was noticing on your uh, LinkedIn page that you went to college first, four-year college first. So were you, oh, yeah. were you intending <laughs> oh, not to do the, the the culinary thing or what What was the thought there? Because I, I have a very similar story. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, well, okay, so we're going way back. Um, yeah, you, you know how it is. Like uh, <laughs> um, Chinese, Chinese American immigrants, you know, my whole purpose was to play string instruments and go to a good college, uh, which despite – Every effort I put towards not doing those things, I did manage to succeed at in some way. So I did go to, <laughs> I hated it. I was like the worst student. I hated yeah. playing the cello, but I did end up going to do the Juilliard school. I got expelled. And then I ended up going to Northwestern University to figure out my life. Um, yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. I only got in because of music. And uh, I eventually declared a history degree. I had no idea what I was doing with that, but uh, you know, I knew I always loved food. I grew up in restaurants. Um, I always loved being in restaurants and the energy of it. Uh, even though I'm considering myself a little bit more of a shy or introverted person at times, I, I do love the energy of being around people. And I worked a desk job after college for about six months, and that was all it really took for me to be like, I'm never doing this again. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, I started cooking, and then that's that's the beginning of the journey. So what what does somebody have to do to get expelled from Juilliard? I, it, you know, I, I tell this story a lot, and I, <laughs> people always assume I did something really cool. It sounds like, awesome. Like I like threw like a cherry bomb in a locker or something like that, or like you know I spray painted the facade, yeah, smashed your, uh, your 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 cello. Yeah, I wish it was something as cool and rebellious and rock star as that, but <laughs> simply like I just didn't go to class like ever. Ah, it go. was too much freedom for a seventeen-year-old kid to be in the middle of New York City, in the middle of Manhattan, with no yeah. supervision, just expecting me to do the right thing. It's like yeah. obviously I was going to make all the wrong choices. Oh, so <laughs> that sounds uh, yeah, sounds like you were headed towards the cook's path already with that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so then, so then you're like, all right, your parents were like, hey, that didn't work out. Cool, got it. Now just go get your four-year degree. 
Uh, yeah. So, you know, obviously at that time, the, the logical progression from high school was to go to college. You know, my, my, my family worked in restaurants. They still work in restaurants. My mom's running a restaurant for the last, you know, uh, it's gotta be close to 50 years now. Wow. Um, and that's part of the narrative, right. Of, of coming here as an immigrant, you work this like blue collar, you know, job that's below your, your pedigree, so to speak. And the whole idea here is that this is your access to life in America and you provide for your kids so that they can do better. They can turn the narrative around, yeah. gain generational wealth, all this stuff. And, you know, that's the idea. Uh, obviously, still working yeah. on that part. But, uh, yeah, I was always discouraged from working in a restaurant. I helped, you know, out of necessity. I had to help at times because, um, you know, how restaurants are, all hands on deck. It, it could always use more hands. Yeah. Um, but you know, my mom never wanted me to become a chef <laughs> by any means. She knew intimately how difficult of a life it was, yeah, right. but, uh, as is par for the course for me, I didn't listen <laughs> and, and I continued on doing whatever I wanted to anyway. So, so then you did that. So then you went to the, you went to Northwestern. Then you also went to culinary Institute, right? I so did. You, yeah. The full, the, that was another four years. No, culinary institute was about a year and a half. I got an okay. associates there. Uh, right. I mean, you know, culinary school—it's a controversial topic. Mm. Yeah. Um, at that time, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, uh, that was all the rage, right? Like Anthony Bourdain was at his apex there and, and yep. continued to climb. He went to the culinary institute, and the the discussion on whether you should or needed to go to culinary school was divided. Um, but to me, it seemed really important. You know, I'd worked as a Line cook in Chicago for a couple of years, but not at any like incredibly ambitious restaurant or anything like that. So I felt like I had a ton to learn. So I was fortunate enough that my mother became supportive of this at this point and helped me out. And uh, yeah, I went to Culinary Institute. And you know, a lot of people trash culinary school. They like yeah. to talk crap about it, but uh, it was good for me. You know, I, I mean, obviously, I'm very lucky, very privileged to not come out of that with a lot of, you know, with any debt. And I was able, I had the time and the ability to do that and it was good for my growth. But yeah. uh, I totally understand that there are a lot of people who are still living under the mountain of debt that that school yeah. had for them. And, you know, entering into a line cook's job salary, which at the time was what, $12 an hour, like yeah. you know? So, uh, but yeah, I overall enjoyed culinary school. It was good for me, but I understand that there are many opinions and experiences there. Just get in there. And I, so I was similar story. I was working in, I actually worked at uh Prudential securities after college. And I was like, uh -huh. after nine 11, well, I went in after that. Once everything was kind of calmed down, we went back to work and I was there for like a week and I just quit. I took my headphones off and I walked out and I was like, again. and I called my dad and told him I'm going to culinary school. And I, I the silence was like three minutes long. <laughs> it's like, yeah, not exactly. <laughs> I had gone to four year college. I was not, I did. Um, now I'm going to culinary school after like two years of working and he was not too happy about it. But yeah, I, I grew up in the restaurant business too. And I, I was mm -hmm. like, you know, I kind of wanted to not do it. Like in my mind, my parents were educators. So they were like, no, get this job, get this job, get the best, yeah. you know, best job you can get and work, you know, picket fence, the whole deal. Yeah. But I, I couldn't get it out of my head and uh, eventually went that route. So I know, <laughs> I know what it's like to have parents looking at you and judging, but I mean, your parents were probably like, you don't want to be us, right? Like my dad was like, what the hell are you doing? But your parents were kind of trying to guide you this way, but you were just drawn, you were just drawn to it, right? I mean, after you were just like, it's like, it's in your blood, literally in your blood. A lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's weird that I've been doing this for so long, and I, I don't even totally understand why I'm doing it. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it. You know, my mother was always like, you don't want to do this, you know. I mean, obviously, she was heaping on the guilt to, like, try to get us to work harder and to be better kids, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> to be right, more right. disciplined. But, you know, it does still stand true. It's it's really difficult work, obviously, as you know, and, like, yeah. you don't want this. Like, live an easier life that's more stable and more predictable and uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have such a heavy toll on your ham family life and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but ironically, I think the other funny thing is though, my mom does love it. You know, she yeah. works incredibly hard and she lets us know that that's for sure. But, uh, she loves it. You know, it's like she, she, because she becomes alive. She, yeah. um, this is the only place she really feels like herself and feels comfortable. And that's why she works as hard as she does is because like, there is really no alternative. And I'm not saying that's necessarily healthy or like that's right. how it should be, but yeah. you know, that's, that's how we feel too. Like you and I as well, right? Like this is the place where we feel alive. 
where things make sense, where my life makes sense. Yeah. And it's being in a kitchen, it's being in a restaurant and it's being yeah. around food. I, I remember getting to that point of being like, hold on a second. I don't have to explain this to anybody anymore. Right. Like I don't have to explain it. Like once it, once they're like, Oh my God, you're working Sunday. Oh, you're not, you didn't mean you have to be there for mother's day or Easter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. But there's a lot of things that I get to do that you don't get to do. And you know, I, I had that conversation so many times. I was like, you know what? Forget it. I'm just, I'm not going to explain it anymore. Like, this is what I want to do. And, and you guys do what you want to do. And that was it. And everyone started to understand, but it was a rough first couple of years. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, for you, I mean, you worked at some great restaurants, 11 Madison Park, um, Cafe Balud, you said, and it seems like a major leap, though, for you to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to open up my own restaurant, right? Because now you have this, people are saying, wow, he's got these these chops, he's been working at this place, so, you know, what's this restaurant going to be like? And now you're like, I'm going to open up this fried chicken spot. Right? <laughs> I mean, was was were you just kind of done with the tweezers and the squeeze bottles and everything? Or, or what, what? where was your head at with this? Not at all. Uh, this is all very, again, very unintentional. So, uh, yeah, I left. I left to love Massive Park, wanting to open a fine dining restaurant. Obviously, I mean, there's still a lot of things I love about fine dining. I mean, I'm still figuring out right now where I'm at with it, where my relationship is, and do I miss it enough to still want to do it? I don't know, but because uh, as we both know, it's a very, very difficult lifestyle, um, and there were some obviously very, very difficult days in coming up as a chef in fine dining, but. You know, I still loved it at the time. I felt a great deal of passion for it. And I was working towards that goal for over 10 years of opening my own fine dining restaurant. And, um, you know, I think to me, a big part of the mission was having grown up in a Chinese American restaurant. Uh, even now, there's the constant needling over the price and the expectation and what it is and what kind of food it is. I think the, you know, the stereotypical expectation for Chinese food is something that shows up in a styrofoam or plastic takeout container. It's got MSG, it's got gre it's greasy, whatever. It's like, it never seemed to be able to be anything more than that. And mm. that really frustrated me because I felt my family did a really good job and I loved this food. So that was my mission for forever and ever was just being like, I need to be the person because there weren't a lot of people doing it for Chinese American cuisine. There are a lot of people doing it for Korean cuisine, which is, which mm -hmm. is amazing. Um, we're seeing some really cool stuff come out of that, but there wasn't really anyone doing that for Chinese cuisine. So that's what my goal was. And then obviously the pandemic happened and every single one of my family restaurants was struggling to, to keep it going. I mean, there was a lot of, it was busy. Like people all of a sudden like loved us again after yeah. like fearing us in December yeah, right. and, uh, everyone was stuck in their home wanting to take out, but like, you know, we weren't, the infrastructure wasn't in place to handle that kind of demand. Yeah. So it was helping my family restaurants out. And then uh, it took to helping my uncle's restaurant out. And, you know, even almost a year in of this pecking house thing, like taking off, I was like, oh, but one day the tweezers will come back. I'll get back into it. Like, you know, that's where I belong. Right. It took me a really long time to be like, oh, hey, this is like cool. <laughs> and yeah. it's doing well. Yeah. And people love it. And, you know, you don't have to be a tweezer chef forever, you know, like, it's so hard to break that mold after doing it for 10 years. And obviously it's such an intense lifestyle where it's like your life is fine dining. Like yeah. it's very difficult to all of a sudden be like, okay, now my life is about something else. Yeah. And again, I'm still figuring that out, but uh, I really like Pecking House, you know, like I, I like that there's food on paper plates. I like that it's very unassuming and like what you see is what you get and yeah. it's enjoyable and it's fun and you get messy. Like you, you know, I, we just did a pop-up in my friend's restaurant and I hadn't seen this in so long because we haven't seen, served people in person in a while, but like just walking around the dining room, seeing red chili oil on people's faces and fingers and napkins that are like a mess, you know, like it's like, it's fun, you know, yeah, like right. there's something very uh, enjoyable about having that experience with your friends, you know? So yeah. it took a long time for me to eventually come around and be like, okay, like, it doesn't always have to be fine dining through Michelin stars. Like this can be your life too. And you right. can figure that out also. I think it's cool that there's, you know, like you used the word a couple of times, there's experience. Like it's more than just going to get fried chicken, right? Like, I mean, there's people are experiencing something different. It's not just going out and getting your traditional fried chicken somewhere. And that experience of getting messy, you know, you know, oh my God, I've never had any of this. It's so delicious. That's also an experience that people are down for, right? It doesn't always have to be this like high level, you know, wine pairing, you know, 25 courses type deal for it to be a good time. And I think that's, uh, that's something I think maybe also kind of came out of the pandemic, right? I mean, like people got a little more casual. They're like, we just want to enjoy something. We want something that's going to bring us joy right now. So do you think there was a little bit of like serendipity in what was happening here? 
Oh, big time. I mean, I got super lucky in so many ways. I, I mean, how did this whole thing start? My, my uncle's restaurant was, was closed since the lockdown, March 15th. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just not a lot of takeout delivery demand in that area. It's become like a very Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. So like, if you're not a kosher restaurant, mm-hmm. you're, you're not gonna, you don't really got, uh, a lot of chances. You don't got a lot of hope there. Mm-hmm. So it was closed forever and ever. And it, what kind of attracted me to it was just simply this idea of like an empty kitchen. That's it's my, you know, I get to do whatever I want. Uh, so that's how it started. But then, you know, the reality set in real quick that after six months, like very little of the equipment worked the way it should, mm-hmm. <laughs> except for the deep fryers. Yeah. So, you know, we were, we were trying a couple bunch of different recipes and the fried chicken one was one that we really loved and deep fryers were the one was the equipment that worked properly. So we were like, all right, this is what we're doing. And, you know, my, my point being is that like, it wasn't intentional at all. And, uh, you know, we're going into the fall of 2020 and people are stuck in their homes and, you know, frying chicken at home is a pain in the ass. Like oh, nobody yeah. likes doing it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, but it's such a comfort food, right? Like it, it's like, so everybody loves it. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. anybody who eats meat, even if you don't eat meat, I'm sure you would love it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just like everything that humans like, you know, it hits yep. every single part of your brain that's enjoyable in terms of food. And so I think, you know, as the weather got colder and people were getting, you know, shoved back in their apartments and there's all this anxiety and fear about what's going on in the world outside, like fried chicken is exactly what everybody wanted. Yeah. And I, I wish I could say I was some sort of mastermind seeing like four steps ahead on the on the chessboard, but that was not by any means. There was a lot of serendipity <laughs> there. And uh, it was really cool to see though, because that's like kind of what started changing my mindset towards wow, this is really something worth doing. Like there were a lot of heartfelt emails and messages about like how much they enjoyed this meal and how much it meant to them. And it was hard for me to put myself in the mindset of someone who was like stuck in their studio apartment for six months, you know? Yeah. Like I had, I had been working the entire pandemic. I didn't yeah. stop once. Yeah. And so when I thought about it more, I was like, oh, this is cool. Like you're really bringing a lot of happiness to people. Yeah. So, um, so yes, awesome. very, a lot of serendipity. So you're, so now just as a practical question you're now you're you're coming from these very sophisticated kitchens right and now you're going to do a pop-up fried chicken in your uncle's restaurant talk about what it takes i obviously there were probably challenges in with the existing infrastructure you alluded to but i mean pop everyone wants to do a pop-up now right it's not easy and i saw a little bit of a video that was on youtube talk about what it's like to do a pop-up in a place that's you know open part of the day and then you're coming in at night i mean what does that take to execute Oh, pop-ups are hard. <laughs> they are really hard, especially if you've been working as a restaurant chef where you're used to having all your things in one place. Mm. Uh, being mobile is, and I actually mobile is not even the right word for it. Nomadic is the right word for it. Like where you're just moving from place yeah. to place and your shit is everywhere. And like, yeah. it's just very, very challenging. And like without a car and without like heavy logistics, it is really difficult to move stuff from place to place. I just did it at my friend's place this last week. Sunday, and that was like a really well-equipped kitchen. It was still really challenging. Hmm. Um, so yes, I, I totally think pop-ups are very cool, and I, I encourage people to do them, but do not underestimate the amount of work it takes. Um, in terms of Queens, I mean, setting up an empty restaurant that had like decades-old equipment was definitely its own challenge, but at least it had a ton of space. Hmm. And um, it was, it, it's funny looking back on it, that that was the easiest part of the journey so far. <laughs> it actually was, uh, you know, sending out this delivery fleet with like 120 yeah. orders of chicken every night. That wow. It was actually the smoothest it ever was because while, you know, it wasn't our kitchen, it was a pop-up technically. Um, it was just easy because everything was in one place and we knew what we needed to make it work and it grew organically over time. But then moving to my friend's place in Brooklyn where we were using the restaurant at night, as you were saying, um, which was incredibly gracious of him and we're super grateful for him to allow us to continue our business and, can, and you know, so people didn't forget about us, if you will. Uh, there's a reason why people do not, you know, become roommates in a restaurant. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. very difficult, oh, you know, especially yeah, when that. your food is like, there's no overlap, you know, right. like you basically have two menus that they're like, your only overlap is like onions and garlic. Like, <laughs> um, Tables. It's there's just no space. It's very challenging to flip it, and obviously you want to be good roommates towards each other. And it, it's just it's very very challenging. And I'm really looking forward to finally having our own space, even though it's been a huge battle to get there, and we're not yeah. even there yet. 
<laughs> well, so let's talk about that. So now you're transitioning out of this and you've now identified a location you said it's going to be in Brooklyn. How did you go about that process? What made you pick this location? What made you decide like, you know what, this is going to be a permanent thing. I'm going to put this kind of fine dining thing on the shelf for a little bit. What, um, talk me through that decision making and what, what ultimately landed you in Brooklyn? Oof, man, what a, that's, this is like the, my, the, <laughs> this is in my life for like a year and a half. Yeah. Like, how do I sum cool. it up? Uh, well, you know, Queens, where we were, we were doing this delivery fleet thing. It's way out there. Fresh Meadows, Queens to Manhattan is 14 miles. Yeah. And as we all know, 14 miles in New York is <laughs> a long way. Yeah. Um, so I knew it could, you know, my family had some fantastical ideas about, you know, making it a permanent thing, but I, I just knew it like it didn't work with like the way the neighborhood was, how far it was. It's so difficult to get to via public transportation. Like mm -hmm. we had to move. Um, so I felt a great deal of urgency in that regard because I've, you know, everybody's window of relevance in New York, you don't know how long it's going to last because the attention span here moves so quickly. So we were always looking somewhere closer to where, uh, you know, our customers were, our guests were. Uh, we did some really rudimentary um, data analysis, market research. We, we, we had zip codes from everyone who had ever ordered takeout from us. And then mm. we just kind of, I mean, I didn't do this. I had one of my employees who was, <laughs> you know, computer savvy and, and tech savvy do this. But he kind of made a heat map for us. And it was pretty surprising. It's like, you know, this neighborhood, these pockets of Manhattan, these pockets of Brooklyn, you know, were just like lighting up red. I was like, we go here all the time. Uh, and like we, we deliver to people here all the time. And so we knew to look in those areas. Uh, and then, you know, naively, I, or with naivete, I didn't realize how difficult it is to sign a restaurant lease. It is okay. such a nightmare. And the more annoying part of it is at that time during the pandemic, everyone's like, oh, it must be so easy. There's so many restaurants, you oh know, spaces God. available. It's like, it's not. Um, mm. You don't have any leverage as a restaurant owner to you know, negotiate in a lease. So we actually got very close to negotiating to signing a lease in Park Slope, um, pretty close to where we are now. Uh, but it like literally fell through at the 11th hour and the amount of time and money and resources and energy we put into that, it was, it was heartbreaking. And it set us back like six months. So we started over again, looking around. Um, we didn't have enough capital to do a restaurant in Manhattan. Uh, the, the price difference between opening a restaurant in Manhattan and Brooklyn is still enormous. Mm -hmm. um, even though Brooklyn is becoming really gentrified and popular. Uh, so yeah, we just kept plugging away and then we found this space uh, and it was, you know, it, we knew it needed a ton of work on the inside, but it was like, wow, but this location is sick. Like we're four blocks from Barclays Center. We're like right in the middle of our red zone of like where, you know, all our customers are. Um, and you know, it's really nice that it's close to my, my business partner and I, we both live in Brooklyn and like walk to work. It's like, it just clicked. And, um, you know, we got the lease negotiation done. We've built, been building it out ever since, but then, you know, as you know, build outs are a whole nother headache. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I feel you because so now I've transitioned out of the restaurant business and I actually am a commercial real estate advisor in Manhattan that works strictly with restaurants. We work, well, we do a lot of national work and stuff like that. So. The leasing process, I'm very familiar with. Okay, got it. And, You're very uh, familiar with it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm curious. I mean, so it's first of all, super next level that the guy on your team created a heat map because that's exactly how we would do it for anybody, right? Like identify yeah. geofence location. I mean, you had different data, but yeah, um, finding those core customers is huge. But yeah, the leasing, they pay a lot of people, particularly like you were basically a startup restaurant, right? They didn't care that you had a pop-up. They want to know who, who you are. Can you pay the rent? And if things go sideways, how are we going to get our money? Right. Mm -hmm. How do you, how did you go about navigating that? I mean, we look at a second generation restaurant, but what was the, is the landlord and mom? And pop? I have so many questions. Is the landlord, mom and pop, or what, what was that process like? Cause it's not easy for a startup restaurant to get, to get a lease. Oh yeah. I mean, even just raising the capital with, you know, uh, at that time we had, just gotten a windfall of like so many awesome press hits, like New York Times, Esquire, New Yorker, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I had been trying to raise capital for a restaurant when I left the Love Madison Park and, and was like, even in the short amount of time I was doing it, realizing how difficult it was. And I felt like, oh, maybe it'll be easier this time we have all this press and kind of proven track record. It was still really challenging yeah. to raise that much money. It was a lot of work. Uh, and then in terms of like landlords, I mean, well, I mean, I, I've only really 
we probably negotiated about four leases. Uh, the first two didn't really get that far. The third one went literally almost signing. And then finally we got this one. So, you know, the ad whole process on its own was almost a year. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, everyone was saying like, oh, there, it must be so bountiful out there with what's available. And it was, really was not the case at all. No. And uh, we dealt with a lot of, I mean, I think in Brooklyn, I mean, you would probably know better than I do, but I think there's a lot more mom and pop landlords in Brooklyn yeah. who have owned their buildings for generations and, you just never know what you're going to get with those kind right. of people. I mean, yeah. they're just like individuals <laughs> yeah, right. as eccentric as every person is to the next one. <laughs> and they can, yeah. yeah. And you <laughs> never know. And it, sometimes you find out at the wrong time that like, okay, I don't know if I want to go into, go into business with this person. Cause I think that's what people have to look at it as like when you're a chef looking at a restaurant space, you're, you're signing a partnership. It's not just yeah. a lease. Like you need this person on your side. You need to be able to work with them. If they're not, you know, you can't work together. You have no working relationship. Like, walk away. Don't fall in love with the space. Um, I am so glad you said that because it's like literally for, prior to everything that happened two years ago, it was, you know, restaurants were location, location, location. You know, that's where you want the location. Yeah. I was talking with somebody the other day and they said the, those three L's have changed. It's now landlord, lease, and location. Yeah. Like, because that relationship was so – because in the beginning with the pandemic, it started like, you know, restaurants were like, F you, I'm not paying – this i can't pay it landlord's like well you got a lease you got to pay it and then the smart one's like okay let's figure this out together yeah but there were still some that were like get out of here you know we're yeah we're and we're trying to bring in somebody else so understanding that relationship is key it's I'm so, I'm so glad that you brought that up because a lot of folks just think like well they're our landlord they have to do the right thing and they blindly go into these leases or they assume things that are just not true and find out when it's way too late that they can't get out of it or that they're have these fees that they weren't anticipating so super important. yeah for sure yeah i mean i remember the first like major casualty of the the pandemic i heard of was uncle boone's which was like my literally my favorite restaurant man, <laughs> like, oh, man. Any, anytime someone came to visit new york like where do you go i was like uncle boone's i love that place i think it's amazing um and then when they you know had heard it didn't work out it's like that just shows you like how important like your landlord relationship is that was a beloved and incredibly successful restaurant and because of the pandemic, they just couldn't figure it out. Now, thankfully, those guys have, you know, still, they're still doing well with Thai Diner. But, like, you know, that was that was heartbreaking. So, yeah, I mean, you know, with landlords, especially with the mom and pop kind, you just really don't know what you're yeah, going right. to get. And in order to protect yourself, you really have to comb through every single line of the lease, which sucks. Like, yeah. <laughs> as a yeah. chef, especially, like, we all tend to be pretty bad students. People so important, like, though, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's miserable. And there's all these, like, really weird things that like you know i'm not trying to say anyone was doing anything wrong or was trying to be a criminal but obviously everyone's trying to protect their own best interests and mm -hmm. what's important to them so you do have to play this tug of war negotiation game and you know with these mom and pop eccentric landlords you just you just never know what's going to be really important to them what's going to bother them and what's yep. going to concern them so we had a lot of leases fall apart due to that very reason like even the one we got super close on like it's crazy to say it, but like we, we had a disagreement about fire sprinklers in the basement and whose responsibility that was. And that tanked the deal. Oh, and, yeah. you know, that took, we, we had already sank like six months of negotiations and lawyer fees in this thing. Oh, and he was God. just like, yeah, that finally was what caused him to snap, like take it or leave it. Like, I'm not budging on this. And we we're like, oh, I don't want it either. Yeah, like, right, right. Yeah, it's uh, so, it's crazy that stuff like that will happen. Uh, we eventually went with someone who's a bit more of a commercial landlord. I mean, he's still like an individual owner, but you know, it worked out, you know, everyone's interests were aligned and you know, there's always going to be challenges in that kind of relationship. It's not like, um, it's not like a familial friendly relationship you have with your buddies. Like it's a business relationship. Right, there's right, complications. Right. Yeah. Uh, but overall it's been really good. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I again, I wouldn't consider myself super seasoned at this. This is like the first lease I've ever signed, but I've I learned a lot in this whole process, as I'm sure you had, you know, throughout even still doing this and you know giving advice to people is just to like look at it that way. It's like oh, it's yeah. a partnership, you know. And you know, I, I've I've unfortunately seen friends who've just like fallen in love with spaces and like huh. they just keep convincing themselves and putting the blinders on that I'm just like guys like yeah. <laughs> you know yeah it's got to be an unemotional business decision if, if if it's not you know i mean it's it becomes yeah you're 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 going after it just based on emotion and emotional decisions very rarely pan out and i think you know chefs all the time right like i was a chef i don't know i don't like to read leases 
Yeah. They're not even my fucking lease. I, I, I'm, I, I, if I was you, I mean, I, if I, if you're my client, I would say, yeah, you should read the lease because your lawyer's not going to be around and you're going to be on the hook for this stuff. And a lot of guys say, I don't want, I don't like it. I don't want to do it. Well, you, you, yeah, you know, you have to do it. You know I mean, there, there could be like one phrase in there, you know, like I was talking the other day about the, the assignment and subletting, right? Like if things mm -hmm. go south, like what, what, yeah. can, what are my options? And there's a phrase that a lot of leases, now you're probably going to run back and check your lease after this, yeah. that will say like the landlord has to approve, right? They're like, Hey, yeah, cool. We got to have to leave. Yeah. Bring somebody in here, but they got to be as good as you are basically. Mm -hmm. But there's a phrase that should be in there that says not to be unreasonably withheld or delayed. So mm -hmm. you don't want the landlord to be like, yeah, okay, cool. And then he's like, but you know what? I'm going to Florida for six months. When mm -hmm. I come back, we'll talk about it. Now you've got six more months to figure it out. Yeah. But there's a bunch of little phrases in there that people need to, you know, chefs, owner, operators should be aware of and that can really, can really trip you up. Yeah, it's really crazy. And again, yeah, like as chefs, obviously we, we cook because we don't like to sit in rooms and read legalese. That's why we do what we do. And Obviously, you there you hire lawyers to do this for you, but it's really important for you to understand, at least on a basic level, what's going on yourself. That being a great example, and yeah. how I, there's so many lines in a lease where you're just like, you're literally like negotiating over like I have X days to respond to this sort of problem, and like, you know, obviously the landlord doesn't want to be under the gun for like responding in three business days, but obviously as the owner, you want them, to, you need them to respond because like the restaurant industry is so fast paced, like. A week can make a huge difference in anything so yeah it's not easy and everybody's coming from a very different place and so <laughs> if you can have a, a a decent working relationship where it's not combative and everyone's at least pretty responsive like that's usually a good sign but yeah man it is tough to find that yeah and, and like you said protecting your interests that's that's key and if you can't then you know maybe it's time to look for something else there will always be another space that's what i would yes. say if yeah. you're not going to do it something else will pop up and you know, all that fun stuff. So now you're, we, I don't want to walk you through the entire construction process, but you're, you're <laughs> close, right? You guys are close. What, what's We're your close. Time, you think? We should be opening at the end of this month. Um, but as you know, things happen. So mm -hmm. we'll see, but it is very close. I mean, like we passed all the major permits, Oh, good. Um, which is, is, is a huge part of the battle. Um, especially, uh, I don't know. You just, you just learned so much stuff that is mm. not yeah, <laughs> the right. things you never really think of. Like oh, after 4th of July, it's like, you know, that's just happened to be when we needed our plumbing inspection. That's just happened to be where we were with the construction, but like nobody's around. Everybody's yeah. on vacation. Yep. The department of buildings is already understaffed. It took forever to get a plumbing inspection. And like, yep. literally you're just, everyone's sitting around with like the walls all open because you're waiting for an inspection to happen. You can't do anything until it's done. Uh. So, so stuff like that, you know what I mean? It's it's just so many little things that add up and, uh, you know, push the schedule, push the budget to the absolute limit. And, uh, you know, we've been delayed and it's been frustrating. I think if we did this interview like three weeks ago, I probably would have been like curled up in a ball, like crying because I was so like upset about everything. Oh, <laughs> but I think I've, I've finally like have processed it. And it's like, you know, as much as I don't like this saying, it is what it is. And we're we're on the luge. You got to just finish the race. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, we should be opening pretty soon. And now, when we're visiting the site, things are moving faster, and it's cool to see. Like, okay, now this is coming together. I see the bar coming together. I see the seats. I see the finishes. I see the walk-in. Like now, every time we go, there's it's becoming more and more real. So it's it's a little easier to maintain yeah. positivity. But uh, yeah, I mean. I am excited now. I think I was upset about this whole thing and really frustrated by how hard it had been a few weeks ago, but I'm excited to get to cooking again, right? And it's just yeah. like this, this, I mean, we signed the lease last December. Um, so this wow. has been almost a nine month battle to get to this point. Wow. And just to do what you really like to do, which is yeah. cook. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So, I know it, get, it gets so wild. I mean, we had, a, we had gone to two locations at one point here when we were in Westchester and you're dealing with so much of that shit. Like I used to look at the prep cooks and be like, I'll cut those scallions. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'll do this. I'll organize the walkings. I don't want to deal with what's going on upstairs. Let me just do something that feels normal to me. It's yeah. it's so stressful. And you're like the waiting and having things, of course, as chefs, right? Like this is out of my control. 
I yes. can't, I can't control this. I have to wait yeah. for the inspector to come back. I got to wait for the delivery of the plywood or whatever it is. So yeah, I, I feel you on that. I mean, it's and Brooklyn too, right? And being short staffed yeah. and plumbing. Was, was this a second gen space or is this a complete new build out? Yeah, it was a second gen space. And I, yeah, okay. I just want to say really quick that I'm so glad you said that because like you, you so get that the, the helplessness is what kills chefs, right? Yeah. Because like that's what we like. That's why we like cooking. Is like you are making things happen with your hands in real time. And that sense of like control and speed and, and that reference of time for how you solve problems, it becomes so difficult when you're waiting on the timeline of like weeks and there is nothing you can do and oh, you're yeah. just sitting there. It's like, it is horrible. Oh, yeah. It was <laughs> like, put me into such a depressive fog for so long. It's, but uh, It's, it's yeah. horrible. And it's also, you know, what we, what we don't get as chefs and you start to really learn this later on is particularly when it comes to real estate and, and permits and things like that, it's, you know, we're used to, okay, I made this for you. Somebody's going to immediately take it out. Somebody's going to immediately eat it. And then when they're done, they're going to immediately pay you. And that's it. But with this, <laughs> it, they're like, well, you have to sign the thing. I signed it. You're like, I signed it. Where's the permit? They're like, oh, now it's like two weeks. till you're like, that's just not how my brain works. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's not totally. what my life is like, that's yeah, it's a real challenge. It's not easy. Yeah, I think that's like what drew me to cooking in the first place. I remember doing this desk job. I'm like, does any of this have any impact on anything? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, if I didn't show up today, like, would it really yeah. fucking matter? You yeah, know, yeah. like, what am I doing? Uh, yeah. So I think, you know, cooking was like, okay, this plate is going to someone. They're going to eat it right now. Exactly what you're saying. Like, that was yeah. a huge part. The immediacy of it, the tangible, like, I did something today is like yeah. what was so important. But uh, yes, in terms of the space, it was a second gen space. It was a sushi restaurant before. Um, they had actually closed before the pandemic. I'm not totally sure why, but um, the space was a little rough. Uh, <laughs> definitely needed a lot of work. And, you know, sushi restaurant, the kind of exhaust they had was just not sufficient for what we needed. Mm. Um, so I knew it was going to be scary to do it, but we were like, we got to rehaul the exhaust. Um, so you had the full experience. Oh, yeah. It was, <laughs> it was a huge lift. It was obviously a ton of work and money, but I think it'll be worth it. But, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure you've seen this more than I have, but you know, I think inheriting a, a space that is a restaurant, at least you have your certificate of occupancy in order. Usually, mm-hmm. there's usually like water, <laughs> get there's I usually do. water, gas, and all that stuff in place. So usually, it's not this like extremely painful process of like redoing a whole building, but it somehow became that way in some regards. Um, but I think it's it is really. Uh, cool space for a restaurant though and just being inside of it as you see the dining room take shape and like realizing like i keep using this word even though it sounds kind of childish and funny but it's like it's very cozy (laughs) it it feels that way it really is like i i can sense it now like when there's people in this room it's gonna feel real cozy everyone's gonna be in here just like having a good time you know and like there's no pretension about it and i'm really looking forward to that i think it's gonna be really cool now, how did how did you? Because you were just making fried chicken, right? Boxing it up, sending it out. How did, has the menu changed? Are you have you been tempted to pull the tweezers out and get anything? Or what? what like what? It, because I mean, that's that you're like, man, maybe I could sell more. Are you selling alcohol? What is the menu like now? Oh, cool. Yeah, great question. Uh, well, tweezers, no tweezers. I used to have them on my person all the time. It's, I just <laughs> had a habit because it just yeah. like it, like it becomes like your hand. You know what I mean? Like you're just so used to using them you got the for bag, everything. What are big tweezers for? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You got so used to it, but now I haven't carried them in a long time. It's a, it's a profound moment for me. Um, <laughs> but uh, in regards to the menu, I mean, obviously, you know, when this all started, it started around the chicken and uh, it's just like one of those things, you know, people seem to think it was this very like purposeful, like genius creative stroke. And it, to me, it was really like, okay, this is how I know how to fry chicken. This is how I like to fry chicken. It's an American country style. These are like the flavors that grew up. Well, you know, Taiwanese five spice. Um, I always felt like that went really well with chicken and the sugar and the MSG and so forth. And then I was, you know, looking at Nashville hot chicken and it was like, oh, they do this like pepper paste with cayenne pepper and the frying oil. And like, obviously that's great. But like, you know, what if there was like salt, sugar, acid, umami in that? You know, what if we use duck fat instead of frying oil? Like. Duck fat, obviously, the way it eats, it makes such a huge difference, you know? So that's really just how my brain works. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, now put all these things together. And, um, you know, that's how that's how it was created. And, like, obviously, we thought it tasted good. I didn't think it was going to become a phenomenon by any means, but yeah. I guess it, it did in some ways. Uh, so I guess from that starting point, it was always like, okay, so this is at the intersection of, 
of Chinese and American cooking, uh, American Southern cooking specifically. And so I just kind of started exploring that more and more and was really surprised to find that like, there's a lot more overlap than you think mm. um, between Southern country cooking, which obviously has like huge influences from the slave trade and, uh, you know, uh, West African influence, um, obviously a very sordid and dark history there, but uh, things we learned about now. And then uh, Chinese cuisine, you know, there's, there's kind of this like similar wavelength of like, uh peasant cooking for like lack of a better word it's it's mm-hmm. like really country humble and like the idea of like full utilization and and you know off cuts and things that um you know wouldn't be suitable for a high table if you will collard greens right. okra all this kind of stuff so yeah like my favorite one of my favorite things is like dirty fried rice uh mm-hmm. you know, dirty rice obviously having like the folded scraped chicken liver into it like obviously chicken liver was something that was you know, something that was reserved for the, you know, slave, uh, slave populations and the poor, and, um, you know, folding that into rice is like delicious. And then there's this crossover where it's like, well, what if it's this like fluffy day old, like Jasmine rice and it's seasoned with like a little bit of salt and white pepper and, and MSG and there's butter in it. And like, it just yeah. kind of clicked, you know, stuff yeah. like that. So that sounds the menu, <laughs> I do like the rice. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, the menu will always kind of center around that is like at that intersection, and uh, we'll be doing biscuits. We have different styles of fried chicken, we have fried chicken sandwich, um, lots of sides. You know, we always used to do three pieces of chicken with three seasonal sides, but you know now that we have our own kitchen, we can do a lot. And I mean, obviously, I love fried chicken. I mean, I, I think I do. <laughs> I have yeah. a tough relationship with it. It's complicated. But, uh, yeah, it's complicated. But you know, in the in the in the canon of country cooking, I think my favorite things are the sides. Honestly, you know, like mac and cheese, braised collards, mashed potatoes. Yeah. Um, you know, buttermilk biscuits, these kind of things. Like you know, that's what really makes the meal to me. So I'm really excited to explore that more. And I think there's a lot um, that exists there where there's the influence of like cooking in a Chinese style with a wok and seasoning with soy sauce and sugar. But you know, there's uh, this wealth of like, you know, recipes and, and experience of country cooking that uh, could be interpreted a little differently. I'm really excited for that. And, you know, again, all of it is just like, I mean, I don't want to say junk food. I like to say fat boy food, but it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. some people you like, you know? you're hungry. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So last question here. I know we went a little bit over, but okay. how do you anticipate, where do you expect your concept to be in five years? Like, how do you want this whole thing to end or, or, or continue? I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't mean end, but you know what I mean? No, like how sorry, sorry. Your story part of it to end, because I, I think that's important and it kind of helps to like guide other decisions that you're going to have to make throughout, throughout the, the, you know, the history of, of the concept, but where, sure. where do you see this? Um, yeah. I mean, I see, I see packing house growing, you know, and becoming uh, a multiple storefront kind of thing. I have no grand illusions of it becoming like the next Chipotle or anything, but like right. I would, Love, I would be incredibly happy if in five to 10 years, there were like two, three, maybe four of these things around the city and we could reach everybody who wanted to reach. Like, it, you know, genuinely, and this is not trying to be like self-aggrandizing, but like there were pockets everywhere in New York City that really appreciated what we were doing. Yeah, right. And, you know, even at the price point, which I know is higher than, you know, your average fried chicken, but there's a reason for that. There's a lot of ingredients and technique that go into it. Right. Um, but even at the supposedly higher price point of fried chicken, it, it did well almost everywhere from like the Upper West Side to Flatbush to the Bronx to like yeah. Long Island City. And, uh, you know, I think there were a lot of people who really enjoyed it. So I would love to make it a thing where we can reach, you know, everybody who wants to get it. And uh, it can become kind of, you know, uh, a, 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 if it becomes part of the narrative of New York, you know, like I would be really honored if. You know, when people visit New York, they're like, oh, you got to go see Peking House. You got to go there. That would be like the greatest honor for me. And I hope that's the case one day. Um, as for, you know, other things in my career, like I think I've finally, you know, agreed to myself that I can't do just Peking House forever. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I don't know if I want to go back into fine dining or do other things like that, I do need to do something different uh, and like to keep, you know, variety and diversity of, of interests and, and, and techniques and uh knowledge in my life because if i just do fried chicken for the rest of my life i think i'll go crazy um so i got other ideas cooking up for fast casual and traditional service restaurants and 
I don't know if I'll ever get to realize all of them, but the ideas are there. But uh, I do, I'm very grateful for everything Pecking House has brought us. It's been really cool. And it's, it's, it's cool to kind of reevaluate your chef's journey in a way after yeah. having been so focused on fine dining, you know, bright heat lamp, white tablecloth, tweezers out, toke on. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's really hard to break away from that after doing it for so long. So I'm really grateful for Pecking House kind of giving me a new perspective on my career. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens, you know, All we right. gotta get the first one. Yeah, open let's do the first. First one. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm fully expecting you to say, let's just get this first one open. God, then we can talk about, talk about the other ones. Yeah, after. exactly. But I know how chefs yeah. work. I mean, I mean, that's sometimes, you know, you, you, you find what you like and you're like, well, maybe I can do this with, you know, because we've talked about this on the show a bunch of times is the successful restaurant groups, the hospitality groups, they just have the machine right in the back end, right. Then they can put a different product in the front end. And that's, that's really the name of the game. So yeah, uh, for sure. I think it's great to to be in the position you're in and super exciting. I'm looking forward to uh, to checking you out when you guys open. Yeah, for sure. We'll love to have you in. Thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah, and right now you guys are closed, right? So there's no ordering just yet. It's just kind of keep their eye on social media when you're going to open and then – Exactly. Uh, I, I, I wish I could give people firm dates, but it just seems to be a moving target. So please follow along. Please follow yeah. us on social media at pecking underscore house. Uh, I promise you, we'll let you know. You'll, that's the first place you'll find out once we're opening and if we're doing pop-ups and stuff like that. Um, but well, yeah, we're really excited to cook for all of you and uh, to return to uh, the fall in New York City, the busy oh, time yeah. for restaurants. Yeah. Oh, he's in good timing. Oh, man. yeah. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Awesome. Thank you, Chef. Thank you so much, Kyle. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for checking out this episode number 124 with Eric Wong, the founder and chef of the Pecking House. If you guys are gonna be in new york city i suggest you make your way over there as soon as they open up i, I just have a gut feeling the lines and, and, and the buzz around this place are gonna be insane um also while you're checking things out why, why don't you check out the subscription button here subscribe to the show and leave us a review if it's been a while since you left the review or maybe you know you have something you want to say about it and you want to give some positive feedback all about it or if you have somebody that you're really passionate about you'd love to hear them speak on the show we always love guest recommendations. I don't think I've ever said that. So um, go ahead, hit us up, send a DM, check us out on Instagram, email me, K-Y-L-E at 4-F-O-U-R-Turns.com. That will get to me directly, and we can talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. So, all right, guys, thanks so much. Chef Eric Wong, Packing House, thank you so much for your time, and uh, have a great day, guys.